Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I've got an extra special guest that I've actually been uh, communicating with Probably best part of a couple of years now, trying to get, trying to nail down a time to to get him on the podcast. Having run a number of his own businesses since 1998, he was a property investor since 1995 and a portfolio landlord since 2011. He's also done an awful lot of financial exams in that time, and he brings a wealth of business, financial, and life experience to financial planning and I know he'll hate me actually saying financial planning because he doesn't see himself as a typical sort of IFA um, but I'd love to welcome John Rose to the broadcast. Welcome John. Thanks Rod, really good to be on. Sorry it's taken so long to, to get a time and a date that we can have a good chat. <laughs> so John, do you want to give us a bit of background? I know I kind of mentioned there you don't like being seen as a typical IFA do you want to give us some background as to kind of how you started your business suitable life and and what kind of what pushed you into that direction having been a business owner in the past yeah absolutely i don't you know i don't see myself as the typical traditional ifa at all i don't come from a financial services background and really i, I sort of fell into this more out of a personal need you know i am my perfect client so it was around sort of 2015, 2016 that I had a, a sort of a life event and transition and my partner of 18 years, we decided we had a very amicable breakup and decided to go separate ways. And, and I sat there and I thought, well, we've, I've got this growing inheritance tax issue. I met someone, I got married and I became a, a sort of first time dad at age 46. And I had all these personal issues going on where I had a business partner that I still cared for very deeply that I needed to protect, a new wife, family on the way. And, and as I say, I had inheritance tax issues that I could see was a moving target because, you know, we invest in property. Property often goes up over time. Therefore, your inheritance tax issue is growing. It's a great thing. Yeah, but it's a problem. Nice problem to have. And then I wanted to sort of protect my, 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 you know, my business partner, protect my new family, and I spoke to a number of different professionals and was just sort of thoroughly underwhelmed with the advice that I was getting. And, you know, A, a lot of the time I was questioning the motives of some of the advice that I was getting. It was like, sell some of your property portfolio, go put it in pensions and ISAs. And I'm like, well, OK, I'm not going to do that. Um, and, and also, it, everyone was working in their silos role. So no, there's no joined up, you know, talking and thinking at all. You know, I spoke to my accountant and said, when was the last time you spoke to my IFA? And he said, I didn't even know you had one, John. So I sort of sat there and, and I thought, you know what, I'm probably the least qualified person to be sitting in all the, the middle of this. And I'm trying to coordinate all the various things that I'm getting. You know, accountant says group company is great for tax. Mortgage says it's rubbish for finance. Mm. So I sat there and I thought, you know what, this is this is crazy. So I actually went off and did my financial advice exams, not to set up a business. It was purely to solve my own issue. So I did sort of nine months worth of, of qualifications and exams and study, which my property portfolio allowed me to do because I wasn't involved in that on a daily basis. And I did it purely to solve my own issue and try and, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So I wanted to go and fill in all the gaps. 
And whilst it was an excellent qualification to take and it did fill in some really good gaps, you know, what it really made me realise, you know, something that I knew already, the financial services industry is about product flogging and you learn a lot about products and how to flog products. So, so it was a good qualification, but I realised that I, you know, I was never going to become and wanted to become a traditional IFA. I started solving some of my own issues. I did some estate planning exams and some of the step exams. And I suddenly, you know, I started speaking to, to, to people in my network and kept saying, how are you solving your issues? And it was the typical, oh, uh, well, it's the sort of thing I keep putting off. So I sat there and I thought, you know what, there's loads of people. I'm, I'm not special. You know, there's loads of people who've got the same issues that I've got. And I sort of got dragged kicking and screaming into the world of financial planning. But I wanted to do it in a very different way. So, so that's really how Suitable Life was born we're a, a sort of a very different non-traditional business brilliant and i mean that that resonates with me so well because i remember having i, I kind of got obsessed i think over legacy planning estate planning for, for probably nine to 12 months at one stage and i was neurotic about it and it was at a time where i i had exactly the same problems I actually, funnily enough, remember speaking to a tax planner saying, do you know what, I might just go and do some of these exams because I'm, I'm, I was trying to find a holistic approach to accountancy, tax planning, and, and tax planning involved various different taxes, of which I quickly realised that there was no one-size-fits-all. You need several professionals who are a VAT specialist, an SDLT specialist, an inheritance tax specialist. All these different people will have their own niches. And it's a bit like, I think, I think, I mean, the amount of times you, you speak to people who say, oh, I've got a, my accountant says this, and what they're talking about is tax planning. And you think, God, this is like getting a decorator to do the bricklaying. It's, uh, it's, it's very difficult. And you're absolutely right that when you, when you said, you're sitting in the middle trying to almost kind of be the puppet master for all these different factions that really never speak to each other, getting kind of tax planners, accountants to, to speak on structure, to speak with finance, to speak about kind of with each other about inheritance tax planning, about kind of share structuring if you're doing family investment vehicles, whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work and you... As, as the person, as the client, I guess, you need to have an element of knowledge, almost about a small element of knowledge about every one of those, which is incredibly difficult to do. Because like you say, if you don't know what you're looking for and you don't know what you should be learning, where do you start? <laughs> and, and, and I think absolutely, totally agree. When, when you do speak to kind of typical IFAs, especially obviously me being someone with a property background, you, you'll speak to them about, I don't know, products that they might be flogging again the fiduciary kind of element of whether whether they are or not can come into it but also it's it's what they understand and they might not understand property which is quite specific in its in, in terms of asset classes in itself it's a bit like bankers uh, you speak to so many wealth managers and you think well what are you doing with your wealth where, where, where's yours at and, and, and i think that's always quite a Quite a good point. So totally, yeah, absolutely resonates with me what, what you just said. One of the things I kind of thought would be interesting to talk about is people at the moment, I see, focus quite often on those financial products, whether it is, I don't know, a SIP or a SAS or an ISA, 
It could be the wrappers they're in, it could be stocks and shares, it could be property. So people often focus on those products as a route to achieving their financial objectives. Do you think that's almost letting the tail wag the dog? And if so, where do you think people should start when they want to plan financially for life, retirement and kind of estate planning, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think people focus in in two real places. They they and and it's because often and you see it on Facebook and a lot of the Facebook groups quite a lot. People turn around, I'm looking for a financial advisor. I'm looking for an accountant. Yeah, because that's the first place that they think they need to go to to get some of the advice that they're looking for. And actually, what they're then looking for is they want some property investment advice or or you know, there's lots of things it opens up into. But the first place that most people go to, and it's the way we are driven. You know, the place we're driven to is, is sort of financial products. That really annoys me, if I'm being honest, Rob, because you, you can't speak to someone about a financial product until you know what's going on in their world and their life and their, and their what I call it, you know, and their real life and their financial life. And yet that doesn't really happen a lot. You know, where, where I start, there's a key concept that I talk about. And it's really, you know, it's about what does enough look like for you? So will you have enough? And will you, you know, do you have enough now today to live that life that you want to live? And will you always have enough? And that's, for me, that's the starting point of everything. You know, the expenditure that you are going to spend in your lifetime is, is really what drives your whole life. It drives your requirement for assets, your requirement for income, you know, what you want to do. It, it, it all comes back to expenditure. And just on that, I mean, it's easy for me to sit here and go, well, here's my expenditure now. Here's what I spend like this year. I don't know, I've got a few holidays coming up. I know my kids have got to take up this expense. But what I don't know, and, and I, can, I can obviously plan for, I don't know, adversity for the kids, things like that, and other things that might come up. I've got daughters, so weddings might be a big one. And, or if I've got to get a new car, um, things like that but what I can't plan for are those unforeseen things that are going to come in so how 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 would you advise someone kind of thinks about that I guess when they're when they're looking at this well it it brings into so when I look at someone's life we have sort of five life stages yeah so we have our work phase work weight workout ways leisure okay so we so we we obviously you know if you have children you have the expense of the children um, but often, because work outweighs leisure, it's you have less time to spend. Therefore, often it is it's not one of the most expensive times of your life. Albeit you do have things like the mortgage and your your growing family and your your you know your growing requirements. When the next phase of life is what I call pre-retirement, it's when leisure outweighs work. So let's say you know we're property investors. So when you are day-to-day managing your portfolio yourself, you're in the workout ways leisure, you're in, you're in full-on work mode. When you've got that, that help, either you know, a lettings manager working directly for you and a small team, yeah, then you're, you're very definitely in that pre-timement yeah, where you're managing the team, but the business to effect can work a little bit without you at times with a little bit of planning, but you certainly have work to do. Yeah, but you might be doing the 20 hours a week or it's your choice if you do more, but you could get away with doing less work and a bit more leisure. We we kind of talk about that in terms of stepping from a managing director position back into a shareholder position where instead of leading the business, you're monitoring the business and just stepping in at times when it's needed. 
Yeah, yeah and, and I think that that sort of goes into the, you most probably might be a little bit more interactive than that. I would say the next phase I call active retirement. And active retirement is pure shareholder position. You're either holding those shares, receiving your dividends, and you know, you're, you're looking at KPIs and numbers, but you are not daily involved in that business. Yeah. You could choose to step in if you want to. Sure. Yeah, but that business can run totally without you and you are you are there taking the money that you require. And at that point, that is the um, that's the most probably a time of your life. And this is this is what we would do is we map out what ages you think you're going to be and you want to be hitting these different phases of your life. Because active retirement, in theory, should be the most expensive time of your life because you've got time, you've got health and hopefully you've got money of the things that you've built up and the assets that you've built up over time. And I guess when people are planning this, that, well, I'm just thinking, obviously, this is incredibly subjective kind of subject. But for me, I'd want that to be the biggest part of my life because it sounds like it's the most fun. It's the fun time. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, because, and remember, you know, we all, when you're in that accumulation phase of life, it's actually relatively easy yeah earn as much income as you can keep a handle on costs save where you can and invest those savings in whatever in you know whatever things that that investment takes property or you go into the more traditional financial product world when you when you are looking to decumulate so you hit a point where you've got these assets some people just continue you know we're all running this race of wealth building most of us don't know where the finish line is Mm. yeah so we keep going for longer than we need to in a lot of cases and i'm all about trying to help people understand that they can go into pre-retirement earlier than they think they can have active retirement earlier than they think because the other three phases to come are less exciting yeah so when you're in active retirement it's the type of thing where you can take off to the thai islands at a moment's notice and travel around there for four weeks the business runs without you you can have a great time you come back the next phase of life is traditional retirement now i don't know about you my dad's 81 and i look at him now and he reminds me of how my nan and granddad were when they were in their 60s yeah so very definitely i I think you know um, people are doing more through their 50s, 60s and sort of 70s. So so that traditional retirement phase, if it was four weeks in the Thai Islands inactive, you're not really a fan of the long haul travel. Yeah. You're doing five days in Bruges. Now, don't get me wrong. I've got nothing against Bruges. But, you know, that yeah. that is that you, you're hitting that point when you hit later life. I think I think it's, it's about capability, isn't it? And, and obviously, if you're not physically capable. Um, to do certain things because of age, because of health, is is probably a massive one. Then, then that's going to inhibit you, and that and that again is subjective. It can come and hit people at, at different times. Exactly. You know, we're we're all talking about the perfect life, course, yeah. you know, timeline, aren't we? And and things happen, but you know, when when you you really got most people don't most people have a really good way of thinking about the next two to five years. You know, people plan that long and not a lot further. They have a, an eye on the long term, but I don't see many people really doing proper plans and sort of expenditure plans and the like for the 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. And like I say, this, this first point is to look at those life stages and where you are now and where you would like to be and where you realistically think you, you will be on the time frame. because, you know, you get to that later life you're lucky, you know, you might have grandchildren and you might get a long weekend in centre parks and you're sitting in the lodge. And then obviously there's later life that no one ever wants to think about. I spend my life speaking to clients who are in their, say, 50s. Oh, don't worry about that. I don't want to talk about that. I won't be in a care home. Oh, I don't. But 
you know what, I, don't, I won't care where I am at that age. I've never met an 85-year-old who doesn't care where he is. Well, I think what an interesting kind of point to maybe bring up there is, is certainly people that I've spoken to seem to focus more on what, at a later stage in life, of what they can pass on to family. And that tends to be sometimes be a very generous way of thinking, but but how, how they're thinking and, and what they forget to maybe is how much the cost of healthcare can be at the last stages of life and how that actually can eat into the, all, all those funds that you really wanted to kind of, I don't know, give to your loved ones to get them started in, in, in something. And I, I, think, I think a lot of people kind of forget that. Like you said, I don't want to think about that stage of retirement. I want to think about the, I don't know, going travelling and, and, and all those bits. I mean, what, what, what do you reckon about that? Totally. When, when we model clients, yeah, we always make sure that we put in a, a good chunk of expenditure towards the end for, you know, for exactly that, those care costs that most people don't want to think about and are way more expensive than most people think they are. And I'm sort of really passionate on the whole legacy thing, because if you look at average age of inheritance in the UK is 61. Mm. You've had two thirds of your life by the time you may hit 61. The reason it's 61 is because often parents are lasting till their 80s and their 90s. Yeah. And they don't do significant gifting on the journey. Yeah. They do a die and distribute model. Yeah, yeah, which, as I say, it's great coming into a million pound from your dad's property portfolio at sixty-one. It's not life, you know. It, it, don't get me wrong; it would be even you know, better if you did that at thirty, wouldn't it? God, the, the age that you can have the biggest impact is twenty-five to thirty-five, and you can do it with a far smaller amount of money. You give hundred grand at twenty-five to thirty-five, and it has way more impact than a million pound at sixty-one, and it starts your children's compounding journey themselves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you see people hanging on to stuff often out of, you know, certainly later on out of fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think in the, in their sort of fifties and sixties, it's often, I love my kids to bits. I've paid for their education or helped them say with university fees. And, and yeah, absolutely. I'd like to leave them a legacy, but not at the cost of my life and retirement. Mm-hmm. But actually if they knew what enough looked like, they would know what they could start to give in small ways through that journey. And in some ways, significant ways. Yeah. And because we all own these compounding assets in property, people really do, they, they, they don't understand exactly what they're going to be worth at the end. And it's, and it's, and it's potentially significant. Mm-hmm. And it actually gets harder to give money as you get older because of the fear factor, if, if you don't know what you need. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then you hit 85 and then you realise yeah, that you've got way too much. And then, it, and then it's much harder and there's less options available for you to give. So in terms of kind of planning for that financial life, where at the beginning you kind of talked about, yeah, you, you, well, essentially your cost of living now, your cost of living going forward, cost of living now, you're going to have various different kind of aspects too. You're going to be earning money, like you said, if you're in that phase where you're, where you're working. Um, what are the different kind of components of that, do you, do you think? So for me, again, the key thing is if you map out the life stages, you can map out the expenditure at those different life stages. Because, you know, if you have less time to for for leisure, yeah, when you're in that work phase, you you know, often it is the it's the mortgage, it's all the various things that take up a lot of the household budget through in the work phase. 
when you hit pre-retirement, people start to spend more on leisure. They turn around and go on more holidays. And often when we work with clients, when they get to active retirement, they're really ramping up holiday spend. And look, holiday is different for everybody. Everybody has a different view on what an expensive holiday is. You know, I might think three and a half thousand pounds on a trip to Tenerife is expensive and that might be the equivalent to you spending 30 grand to the Maldives. Yeah. So we're all very, very different on how we see those things. But for a lot of people that, that we deal with, because they've been binging on work, they go into this binge on leisure and binge on holidays when they have the time, certainly for the first few years. So quite often they're thinking, oh, I'm going to be spending 10, 15, 20, 30 grand a year on different holidays in a year. So there's quite a big makeup of, of that. And, and obviously, as people get older, often, you know, you're down to one car, you're not doing those types of holidays, you're going out less. So just the, the makeup of people's expenditure changes through their life. Mm-hmm. And, and I hear a lot of people turning out, I need five grand a month, you know, and they, they see that as that magic number that they need for the rest of their life. Well, it, it's rubbish in a lot of ways, because it will change your requirement will change through that through your your lifetime. And the things that you will spend it on will change. And then you've got, and as we has been brought into sharp focus recently, you know, inflation will potentially ravage, um, you know, ravages savings and it turns around and it will increase various elements of your expenditure. And so you've got to try and model elements of that as well to understand that 30, 40 year picture. I, th- I think that's a good, well, very topical point on inflation. I mean, in terms of where you are in life, in terms of your wealth, in terms of your income through work, income through maybe investments, income through, I don't know, shares and what have you. How much do you think liquidity plays a part in that? Yeah, big time. We we have a concept that we talk about called the financial ecosystem. And it talks about the stream of income that you have through your life and the different forms that it takes through your life. And that stream will ebb and flow through your life. So there's times that you have a lot more income stream and there's times that you have a lot less and it, and it comes into your bucket and out of your bucket goes your taps, all the various different costs that you have. There's five different cost taps. Um, and through our life, we're trying to earn as much as we can to turn around and keep a control of cost and then go and save into what I call the well. And the well is everything that is liquid, as good as cash, can be turned into cash at a moment's notice. So ISAs, savings, investments. And if you were of pensionable age and could draw your pension, it's Mm -hmm. your pension. And then we have another element of our financial ecosystem, which is our freezer. And it's all the little ice blocks that are your main home, your buy-to-let properties, your commercial properties, shares in a business that you own. It's all the illiquid things. They have value, but you can't turn them into cash at a moment's notice. Now, as, as property investors specifically, because we're all very cash hungry, you know, we all see projects that we want to do. We've never got enough money to do all the things that we would love to do in the world of property. We're all inbuilt to turn around and sweat our assets and sweat our money as much as possible. But there does come a point in life where you need to be a little bit more liquid Mm. on a number of different reasons. One, so you can ride out the storms because lots of people are finding that to their cost, that they can't ride out those storms as they hit. Secondly, from the emotional side of spending. Yeah, I know a lot of people who are worth, you know, five million pounds in assets, but they've got, you know, not a lot in the bank. So every time they look in the bank, they feel skinned. I've got no money. Yep. And, they, and it affects them how they spend, and yet they're worth five million pounds. And they say, John, I, you know, I don't feel wealthy. It's because they're not liquid. It's because that their their financial ecosystem is too heavily skewed 
in all those income producing assets in the freezer. And you do need some liquidity and it gets more important over time. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between 6 and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed-use developments and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do. Provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, the terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. Absolutely. And I mean, in case it's not obvious, the reason I kind of mentioned that is having having cash obviously is being eroded at the moment by inflation so we've as investors whether it's property or, or anything to be honest have the tendency like you said to, to want to take any cash and have it invested but like you say if you've got illiquid assets property being probably the number one one of those unless of course you're investing through a structure that's liquid like a, a fund or even a, possibly a REIT then then Having having cash actually, you, you, what you're, you're what you're giving up in in returns, you're gaining in liquidity. So it's great, like you said, and the, and, and the most common one you see is with people's own homes. And so where where they've I don't know built a lot of capital and a lot of wealth in their own home over time, and this was a, a big one when they there was talk of kind of having that wealth tax on higher value homes. And people were going nuts because they were thinking, well, I'm retired. I don't have an income. But now I'm going to be taxed every year for, for this house that is just my home and I live in. And I think, I think that's a really key point that so many people forget. 
when they're thinking about kind of investment and and how much cash they should have and the whole kind of these these kind of buzz phrases like cash is trash and things like that and it's well yeah but again it's it, I, I suppose it's it's a good phrase that we kind of always used to hear was you can't spend equity in asda but there's ways and means of doing it and look if you if you can get get loans secured against equity if you can do things like that then yeah you're making it more liquid there's a cost of that capital it's not going to happen overnight it might take <laughs> a couple of months but it's about i think from the individual's point of view it's about understanding their whole portfolio and what parts like you say are in that well the liquid bits that can be spent or converted to to cash to be spent nice and quickly and i just think that's such an important thing that's so overlooked by a lot of people the people 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 i generally work with don't have a balanced ecosystem and that's not through any fault they they are often very investment weighted yeah they have a decent income coming in they're they're most probably controlling spending for far longer than they need to yeah and and like i say if you if you spend your time focusing on income which is what most of us do mm-hmm. yeah and we want to make sure that we have enough income through our life to cover the costs and we quite often look at our expenditure being flat or saying well you know i'd like to be able to up it by a couple of grand a month from x point onwards yeah but we don't really see this big you know gifting spending type phases that we go into we and some people talk about retirement of what can i live on you know you know what what's the amount that i can live on they're not thinking about well, what could I spend, you know, and have this spending plan. If we, if we spend our life just focusing on income and trying to get enough of that to cover expenditure through our lifetime, you end up dying with a full freezer. Mm-hmm. And when you die with a full freezer, like I say, you make your kids rich at age 61 and you make the treasury rich very well, you know, and, and there's a reason why inheritance tax receipts are going through the roof at the moment. You know, it's still not the biggest contributor to the treasury funds but it's six billion pounds of very useful money yeah. and it is growing year on year oh that's been taxed already as well but I, I, we won't get into that <laughs> we won't get into that no, no, no. um so on that kind of point then i i know some people focus on building a legacy for their family obviously in, in terms of estate planning whether it's family loved ones charitable causes for after they've passed on so often people could look at this with having an element of controlling those finances from beyond the grave for want of a better phrase because they might think well i do a hell of a lot better job than other people which absolutely can can be true but what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes you see when people speak to you about kind of legacy planning it's interesting so i think you People often with legacy planning either I find have thought about trusts and are quite pro-trust or they've heard bad things about trusts. Their mate down the pub has told them that trusts are an awful thing and they're very expensive, etc., etc., etc. Or they think trusts are the, the golden bullet to solve every ta- you know, every inheritance tax issue known to man. And obviously, other than the, if you like, generational inheritance tax benefit that you get from trusts, where you know money put into trust is not owned by the next generation down they can have use of it but they don't own it so it's not in their own estate so the treasury don't get another bite of the cherry there aren't any you know massive tax benefits of trust anymore gordon brown put pay to a to, to a lot of that many years ago so so as i say you 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 either get very pro or very against trusts and and i think people should just have a very open mind because for the 
for the right set of circumstances, for the right family set up, for the right assets, mm -hmm. the protection of trusts can be a great thing moving forward for people. And I think, like you say, it's understanding what's, what are their priorities. Is it tax efficiency? Is it protecting the bloodline in case, I don't know, your daughter or son marries someone and then they get divorced and you don't like them and you don't want to have them to have a right to, to some of those things? Although I know kind of there are things to protect those people as well now. Um, I think I think it's about priorities really when it when it comes to it and often again some people aren't aware of what their, their own priorities are until they kind of are explained certain scenarios that could happen and I think that's 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 also a mistake that that we see you're so focused in on what you're trying to achieve that you forget some of these things that can come along and and happen in the future it is and, and I think you know, you're absolutely right in saying you, you need to get clear on what your priorities are. Mm. Yeah. And so there's to be able to even think about legacy and let's say gifting in lifetime and things like that. You need to know how much you need. You need to know what an, what enough looks like for you today and into the future. Yeah. And and so I see some people who, who might come to me and want to talk. Of, oh, I want to talk about inheritance tax. I don't want to pay any inheritance tax. And I'm like, OK, you know, how, how much do you need it? And they, well, I don't know. I said, well, you might not have an inheritance tax issue at the end, you know, because of care home fees, like you said earlier. So it's getting really clear on that first and foremost, because mm -hmm. then you know whether you've got way more than enough. Mm -hmm. And if you have, then you should be planning for that now. And then it's when you start that planning, is it about, as you say, is it about protection? Is it about trying to make sure that it's as tax efficient as possible? And when people start looking at gifting in lifetime, again, often they're trying to think about protection and, you know, from the from the outside threats and trying to be as tax efficient. But there's a huge emotional side of things as well. So when you gift to your children, you know, even if, if it's via trust or directly, is it with strings attached? You know, is it with the open carte blanche? You can do with it as you will. Is it for set purposes? Because if you're not careful, if you're not clear, and if you don't have communication, you know, good communication lines about money, and sometimes third parties can be helpful with that in that family setup. One of the issues that you have is, is that if that money doesn't get spent how you would want it to, and, and you don't see that it's being used worthwhile, mm. then, you know, you, you, you have, it's going to be family conflict that comes into play. And so something that should be a very good thing yeah, ends up being um, something that's a battle. Absolutely. Look, here you go, son or daughter, here's a hundred grand to go and put as a deposit on your first house. And then they, I don't know, head out to Vegas with their mates. It's probably not what you want to see, is it? No, absolutely. And look, one of the things I think that you and, and others talk about is kind of this wealth, wealth creation mode versus wealth using mode so it's kind of you're either trying to build that wealth while you're capable or you're living off the proceeds of that wealth but i think in in some scenarios there can be a mix of the two so it could be so for example someone like myself i live off income from investments so that's how i i live my my day-to-day -day costs come come from that but i'm but i'm not staying there i'm still attempting to grow that not just the income but the underlying assets as well in that sort of situation do you think there needs to be a a kind of dual view and, and treating those two different things wealth creation and wealth use 
as two different things or should it still be a holistic view? I still, it's still a holistic view because I, you know, if you have been good at making money through your life, that doesn't stop. Yeah. You know, if you, if you have that skill, if you turn around and are good at creating wealth, you don't lose that. And, and often because you're good at it, it's something that you enjoy. So I'm very much about helping wealth creators know where the finish line is so that they can turn into wealth users if they, if they want and can stop creating wealth at that point if that's what they want to do it's all about choice really because i see a lot of people working harder than they should yeah in inverted commas but and and because they feel they have to not because they're wanting to listen i'm a bit of a workaholic you know if you speak to my wife she'll turn around and say you're nuts but it's because i want to absolutely it's it's about that satisfaction from work or, or whatever it is that you're passionate about it's about um, it's about that purpose as well. So, I don't know, you talk about the finish line, but I, I'm kind of a, a great believer that there almost is no finish line because once you get to the to the top of that mountain, you then go, well, what next? Where's the next mountain? Where's the bigger mountain? That's what I, because it's, it's, it's that uphill climb. It's that kind of constant improvement that I think is is key, whether or not that's building wealth or whether you come to a stage where you're building wealth it's right now what is the next purpose is it about how I pass that wealth on is it about what I can do positively with that wealth is it about my satisfaction that I'm going to get and what is that satisfaction from and and that and those things can change over time but I think it's it kind of comes back to that purpose element doesn't it and, uh, and, what, and what i don't know what gets you going it is what's it all for and and and, and as I say I, I, I'm I'm a great believer in just people having the choice and, and the full understanding that they don't need to anymore because there's a lot of people I see who are still turning around and climbing the mountain because they feel they have to and that they don't have enough, but they couldn't define what enough is other than they might have this arbitrary number. I want 20 grand a month worth of income or what, whatever it is. It's yeah. generally arbitrary. Yeah? Yeah. And I'm about, listen, if you can turn around and actually plan and sit there and understand in great depth and detail what you've got and how it changes over your life, then you know that you're, you know, you know you've passed the finish line, but you're carrying on for your own reasons. That's absolutely fine. And you know, work does define us. I, I, I sold a business back in 2009, and and I'd been working 70 hours a week for seven years, and and said that's it, I'm done at age, you know, 39, 40, and, and moved down to the Kent coast in the middle of nowhere and got bored within eight weeks. Yeah. And and you know, and I realised then that I have to do something. Yeah, I can't do nothing. Eight weeks of doing nothing was enough. And, and I was absolutely, no, I'll never do that again. You were so I know that active retirement, were you? You were still at that, yeah, yeah. I wasn't re- yeah, absolutely wasn't ready, you know, and didn't realise it. All I was rejecting was the hard work that had been done previously. So I think if you can, you can understand, you know, there's a big thing about understanding yourself better, isn't there? And, and really understanding what the purpose is. And for some people, the purpose is just to earn more money because they haven't thought about it enough or they think that they need to earn more money. For others, and there's this, you know, the big, the big conversations all the time about financial freedom and financial independence and, and everything else. And that, is, that means different things to different people. Absolutely. Like I say, it's, it's so subjective. And, and I guess like when we talk about financial products, it's incredibly subjective as well. So 
where you might say, I don't know, I'm going to be putting money into my ISA. And the next person might say, well, why are you putting it into the ISA and not into your pension? And it comes down to, I guess, well, how does that fit into that well that you talked about, i.e. that liquidity? If I'm 65 years old, then that pension might be a bit more beneficial. If I'm 20 years old, then the ISA might be a bit more beneficial. But if I'm 20 years old and I already have some decent liquidity, some decent investments that I can get my hand on, then, and I'm hitting my maximum amount in the, in, the, in the ISA and my pension still isn't used up and things like that, then, then those things can start to work. And I, I think at, at the moment, there seems to be, like I said at the beginning, lots of people are so kind of, I don't know, focused in and zoned in on, on certain types of products as if they are the coming of the Messiah and they are the answer to all their questions. And, and look, people who are into kind of direct investment in property will suddenly should bloody be thinking right now, yeah, all this talk about SaaS pensions and things like that. I mean, what are your thoughts on some of those financial products and, and how they're utilised? I mean, just to give you an example we both have, have young kids and uh, I remember looking at right if I if I stick I think the maximum for a junior sip is 3,600 I thought if I just stick 3,600 on the day that my, my daughter's born and just don't ever put anything else in there by the time she's 65 that'll be worth four 490 grand obviously you can if you in, increase it for inflation stuff but I mean that's that's a, a wonder of compounding and then you might think, well, if I did that on an ISA, would it be great? But then can you pass your ISA down tax-free? And there's so many kind of different questions to think about that are going to be personal to, to your personal situation, which is why I just find the idea that people focus in on these products as if they're the answer to everyone's issues in that, in that ballpark. It's just crazy. I mean, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? I think the, the, the key thing is you've got to look at the interest of the person that you're speaking to, uh, as in, you know, if you speak to someone who sells sasses, yeah, then, you know, you're going to get sold a sass. You know, if you speak to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So, so there's, de- there's always vested interests and conflicts and things like that. You know, I, I, I said I'm not a traditional IFA and look, I'm a qualified and trading independent financial advisor. You know, I, everything I do would be a fixed fee, not percentages, which is how most people. So I see that I'm free of conflict from different products and and the way and the way I charge the. So sometimes I denigrate financial products a little bit, but there's a there's a there's a home. You know, there, there's definitely a role for all these things. You know, yeah. I see people that you know pensions and the tax efficientness of pensions. You know, and when a lot of us have bought, built our property portfolio, we've got good rental income coming in, say, to a limited company. You know, making pension contributions from that company can be a massively tax efficient way of turning around and building some wealth somewhere else. Now, what you do with that, where you invest that pension money is a whole nother subject. Yeah. But the actual ability to be able to take, you know, money from your company, paying into your pension and get the corporation tax offset. And, you know, that, that's a fantastic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you then alluded to the compounding effect that you have now for some people they you, you you have to have a plan for that because you know it used to be that there wasn't a limit pretty much to what you could have in your pension then it was 1.8 million it's now down to one point you know 1.073 million so exactly if you've already got that amount then should you be filling that side up of things and, and, and exactly and when you come to those different stages of retirement that you've talked about where will your income come from 
and are you going to structure it so right if i put my pension up to two million and take the tax kind of from from there come those stages of retirement is that going to work or have i already got a nice beefy isa that can i can claim tax free and actually have the pension as part of my legacy planning that can pass down and and, and all these kind of things are are important yeah I, I think i think i just find it nuts in certain circles how some people kind of look at a lot of these things and without understanding another individual circumstances decide that actually this is the thing you should be doing it's, it's yeah it just it just seems very odd and i know I, I know personally of lots of people who have set up these sasses at great expense where a sit pension would have done exactly what they required from it and, and likewise, I know people that have put money into their pension when they've already reached the limit, and they've got and their and their ISA's got next to nothing in it. And I just think, what are you doing here? It's the overview of all the products. So you know, as you rightly say, that like SAS is very big on the property circuit at the moment. Has been for a few years, you know, and. And, and plainly, there's you know there's there's a lot of interests to get it out there, and as you say, it is almost messianic. You know, people are there saying it's the it's the next big thing, and in some way, you know, p- people are are unfortunately coming across the, the the pension itself, the product itself is a good product, yeah, and for a lot of people, it really can be used well, used properly. I have a SAS myself, okay, so so you know, I talk from a point of view that I saw a lot of benefit in having that SAS for my for my family. But as you rightly say, there are some people who do not use the flexibility that it gives. For lots of people, they don't have the circumstances to be able to unlock some of the benefits. You know, they, they, they can't use loan back in a, in a compliant way. There are people who will allow them to do it in a non in what I would call a non-compliant way. And so, so there are a lot of people paying money needlessly for flexibility they'll never use. Whereas there are others who are absolutely making the most of, mm-hmm. of their SAS. But if you, if you went on to some of the property forums, you'd think there's only one pension product in town. And, and, <laughs> well, and, and, not if you go and start speaking to just commercial owners and then they'll rave about SIPs. But I think, I think one of the interesting things there, that we're going to take a slight segue here, is the way in which I think some people perceive that professionals have certain duty of care I mean, there's been cases recently where SAS pension money has been used to loan to companies with no security. And I think one of the first kind of things, and, and, and unfortunately that, those deals went, went badly, all that, all that money was lost. And one of the things that I found amazing, or well, the first question I asked was, how on earth did the SAS company and I might be using the wrong terminology here I know it's not the trustees but the SAS provider, provider, yeah, yeah. provider allow um, allow a loan to be made from that SAS that had no security and I was I was quite kind of flabbergasted by a response about actually what a provider's kind of mandate is in terms of actually what they're mandated is not about you keeping your investment or getting good quality investments it's more about the tax efficiency or something like that and i just thought wow (laughs) i didn't know that and i'm pretty certain a lot of other people didn't know that and it's just it just kind of amazed me i guess how how you how different people or different roles can be perceived when actually that that can often not be the case 
the, the, the role of the SAS provider is in effect to be the custodian of your pension it, or it's the, you know, you think of it as the accountant and yep. bookkeeper of your pension in a lot of ways. And just to keep you on the, the, the straight and narrow, unfortunately, it's looking like there are some SAS providers who have overstepped the mark and, and in some ways at the behest of, you know, the SAS holders in other ways, because of vested interests and the like, and, you know, whether there's any fees changing hands directly from from offering investments, who knows, Rod, who knows, you know, they should be disclosed in lots of instances, things like that aren't disclosed, unfortunately. Mm. The, you know, they're, 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 I've seen people who, who have SASs saying, well, my provide, you know, my SAS trustee, my provider turns around and, and connects me to people and offers and, and you know, is offering me um, different investment propositions. Well, they shouldn't be. You know, it's not their role to do that. They're, they're, they're certainly not um, regulated. an allocator. They're not there to provide you with wealth management advice in terms of what to invest in. They should be just making sure. I guess, I guess when we look at it in terms of an investment portfolio, and then it goes back to the wealth creation versus wealth use, I always think from a property perspective, if I'm trying to create wealth, I'm thinking more along the lines of private equity. That's what I'm thinking. I'm trying to grow over a specific time frame, over a period of maturation that's, that I'm going to put my investment in and I want to grow it over time. And I can afford, afford maybe to be a little bit more kind of, well, the quickest ways to scale that are one, to put in more effort, a capable effort, and two, to take on a bit more risk, probably in, in, in terms of leverage. Then when I turn my portfolio to thinking actually now I'm looking at it in the fixed income part again this is kind of goes back to the wealth use I want to I want to live off the fixed in, I want to live off part of my portfolio where I know I've got x amount coming in all the time and look one property is not going to mimic fixed income because it's exposed to idiosyncratic risks like I don't know you might get far or pain in the ass tenant or something like that and this is why institutional money is looking at real estate, residential real estate as fixed income, because they can buy a thousand units at once. Yeah. And then they're actually the idiosyncratic risks of asset specific risk are, are not are not an issue because they've got lots and lots of them. And I would I am aiming to have that fixed income portfolio as, as part of that in, in terms of my wealth use. The problem, I, th- I think, is a lot of people feel they've got to that fixed income without acknowledging the fact that there are those <laughs> those risks to those a- specific assets which can come and bite you in the arse. And I think in terms of kind of the wealth creation versus wealth use, private equity approach versus fixed income, I think people kind of fall into the pension trap sometimes of thinking, actually, I'm you- I've already got a lot of wealth in property. And now I'm going to expose my pension, not just to fixed income, which really, when you're in those late stages of retirement, it probably wants to be more the fixed income approach. And actually, I'm going to expose that portion of what I've got for that to more of the private equity stuff in terms of loan backs through SaaS, in terms of lending on developments and things like that, in terms of, I don't know, high risk lending, even if it's secured by charges and things like that, it's still pretty high risk. And, and, and I just think, God, if you've got 80% of your wealth already in property in the UK, do you really want to be exposing what you've got ready for retirement to that as well? And I guess it depends on what is, what is the, the, the value of your 
well, I mean, if we're talking about 100 million quid and 20%, yeah, you're going to be all right. <laughs> if we're talking about a million quid, then 20% mm, at retirement, are you going to be all right? That's not going to pay many years of care fees. So, yeah, I, th- I, th- I, just, I just find the whole kind of thing a little bit... Like, it's almost like a cult. People kind of get hoodwinked into, right, this is what I'm going to do. And actually, when you start to go back and think about those stages of retirement, how you're going to fund them, the level of risk that you can afford to take. Because look, let's face it, if you if you haven't got the money and you haven't got the wealth, then you can afford to take a bit more risk. Yeah. If you have, then that, but that that those funds are earmarked for something really key that you need, i.e. comfort in your last years, then God, it's it's a big old risk to be taking. What what are, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's you're absolutely spot on because I think as property investors, you know, a lot of us don't. You know, I, I understand the market a lot more now due to a lot of the qualifications that I've taken. But I, I would say I was a very amateur and didn't have and I didn't have a lot of money in the stock market. Obviously, you know, and I'm still very overweight in property. So. I but think it's property. On, that, on that front, I guess, I guess my argument would be I'm absolutely, totally overweight in property, but it's because I feel that I'm capable and I've got a skill set and I have an edge over the market that I can I can make use of. I don't have an edge over the stock market. I, I, I can't go and pick stocks and things like that, in which case I'm just going to leave it to the benchmark and stick it in indexes and have those run. And I, I think it comes back to where are you trying to perform in terms of a benchmark and what are you benchmarking yourself against? Because if I want to invest directly in property that takes up a hell of a lot of effort, load of stress, yeah, what am I benchmarking that against? Well, really, I should be benchmarking it against kind of residential property funds and how they perform. And if I'm doing that and I'm beating it, then fine. If I'm doing it and not beating it, then why the hell am I bloody putting in all that effort? <laughs> it just seems bad. I think a lot of people are quite detached from their pension fund, especially if they're not of an age where they can draw it. Okay, so when you can draw it, you're a little bit more attached to it because it is a it is a bank account, if you like, that you can get your hands on. But I think too many people are detached from it before the, before pension age. And there's a lot of vested interests out there that make things sound very seductive. So I see a lot of people out there who are absolutely gagging to lend money to various different property projects. And some of these projects, you know, if you're lending to someone who's got good background assets, a decent main home with not, a, with not a huge mortgage on it, you know, decent property portfolio, and they're taking a single loan in from you to do something. I think that's, you know, there's a risk plainly. Yeah, but I think you can take a fairly decent view of something like that. If you're one of 60, 100, 150 people lending in significant sums to big projects that if they go wrong, they're going to bankrupt the person who's doing it. There is an inherent risk in doing that sort of project, even if there is security. And, you know, because again, most, in most instances, you buy a property, you, you, you knock it to hell, it's worth less than you paid for it, and it doesn't actually start to creep on some more value until it gets a cert, past a certain part of the project. So even if you've got first charge security on it, you know, that first charge security could have been degraded to a significant, you know, a much smaller amount of money versus what was potentially near lent. So... So I think there is, there's a thing here where people are detached. There's a thing here where they don't understand the stock market. So they just think investing in other people's property projects is a bit like doing their own. Mm-hmm. And then there is a whole underbelly out there who are encouraging and seducing people to do it. Mm-hmm. And that, again, is out of vested interest. It can either be you know, fees being paid to introduce or if you're a SaaS provider you know, and you only make 750 or 1,000 pounds 
out of running the SaaS on an annual basis. That's not a huge amount of money. You've got to have a lot of SaaSes to turn around and, and, and make a decent business and a decent income. But if you're charging £1,000 to do due diligence, £500 to get a loan agreement, X amount to do the security work, you know, all of a sudden it's in your interest to have the velocity of money yeah, and that amount of loans and everything moving around because that's what keeps you busy. That's what makes you money. And there's a good reason then for why you know that a, a provider may want to turn around and have people lending lots of money because again it's good money to be made and it whereas if someone has a million pound in their SaaS in the market yeah the SaaS provider is making no money off of that other than his you know whatever his annual fee is absolutely couldn't I couldn't agree more John look I'm conscious of the time and I'd love to get you back on to kind of go into a bit more detail into some of these products maybe even some case studies of, of when certain things might be better than other things, uh, because, again, everything is so subjective. But thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for giving up your time. If anyone is interested in kind of talking to you about their financial planning, what's the best way for them to get into contact with you? Pop onto the website, www.suitablelife.co.uk and come via there because you know it's got our telephone numbers emails etc so but you know you'll see me lurking in plenty of facebook groups i'm not backwards in coming forwards in posting and so can you connect with me somewhere there but absolutely most probably come to the website and that's the best way to come through brilliant and i'll make sure i put a link on the on the show notes for that as well if anyone's if anyone wants to click on that so john yeah thanks so much for coming on and hopefully we'll have you have you back soon sooner than two years cheers rod it's been really great thanks ever so much and yeah we won't leave it so long cheers <laughs>